And here we go, the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. Thrilled you're here today, this evening, whenever you're listening. Of course, you know I'm Eddie Cohn, host and creator of The Spiritual Spiral. And I'm particularly thrilled that you're here today because you get to listen to a wonderful conversation that I had with Sarah Willen. First of all, I know Sarah from high school. I went to high school with her. I think she was a year or two younger than I was. I'm sort of intrigued by the natural evolution of human to uh, the natural evolution of human beings in this world of social media and what is technology doing to our lives and it's funny Sarah sent me a message a couple hours ago on Facebook saying that she's still really been thinking about our conversation and it made me think about the world of 2020. It feels like we have become so reactionary and rarely do we actually think and take a moment to digest what we've watched, read. It really has become a world where it's just, you know, on to the next thing. And so I'm trying to create a show where we're um, not just me, you, we're all sort of really thinking beyond ourselves. It's so easy to just sort of, somehow this world of ours has made it okay to just lump people together into a box, just assume that you know somebody based on, I, I don't know, their skin color, the color of their hair, who they vote for. It, it's like the world just wants us to Assume we know everything without asking a single question. What's interesting about Sarah is it feels like what she does for a living as a professor is to open up a room and a space where curiosity thrives. And she tries to create a space where people are asking difficult questions. And so about a, a six months ago, maybe a year ago, I saw that Sarah wrote a book. I saw this on Facebook. Um, the book is called Fighting for Dignity, and she explores what happened when the Israeli government launched an aggressive deportation campaign targeting newly arrived migrants from countries such as Ghana and the Philippines. Then I got a message from her a few months ago inviting me to check out or be a part of this new Facebook group. And it's actually more than a Facebook group now at this point, but it's called the Pandemic Journaling Project. And it's really this group of people coming together and writing journals, entries, video entries about their experience living through a pandemic. I thought, wow, what a great opportunity to finally ask Sarah on the show. And it's really... It's funny, but I, I love the conversation. And I also really thought a lot about what we spoke about. So it's a great conversation. Please check out Sarah on Instagram. I'll put a lot of the links in the notes of this episode. But it's on uh, the Pandemic Journaling Project is on Instagram. It's at Pandemic Journaling. It's also on Twitter. Uh, Facebook group as well. The URL I'll put in the notes for this episode, but if you just type in Pandemic Journaling Project in Google, it'll take you right there. As far as Sarah, I'm going to just read a little bit. 
Sarah, Will- Sarah Willen, PhD, is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Connecticut and director of the research program on global health and human rights at the university's Human Rights Institute. Willen has edited and co-edited three books in five specific journal collections and authored over 35 articles and books. <laughs> Nellie, my cat just walked in on issues of migration and health. So clearly you can see why I was interested in speaking to Sarah, and I I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. So um, again, type in Sarah Willen in Google. You can find out all about her and the Pandemic Journaling Project, as well as information on her book. Um, And if you enjoy the show, you know where to find me at Eddie Cohn on Instagram, Say hello. Please share the show with your friends. That's really helpful. Uh, write a review on iTunes. You can follow, find me um, you can find me on the internet, of course, at IamEddieCone.com. I just released a new song, which you can find at EddieCone.bandcamp.com. You can hear my cat Nelly purring in the background. As always, thank you so much to Sarah for taking the time to talk to me and to you for listening, supporting, and being a part of the Downward Facing Spiritual Spiral podcast. Okay, good. Um, this is really weird. I like I spend most of my day in my office with a wall of books behind me, and right now I'm in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah, it's funny though. I um, I saw a, a photo of you on um, Facebook. If I'm ever not looking at you, I'm just making sure the sound is okay. But I saw a photo of you on Facebook this past week, and of course you had like all these books behind you. I'm like, that's so Sarah. It's like my defensive wall of books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. good to see you. It's good to see you too. I was just thinking, I'm like I'm probably about as dorky as I looked like I was going to be in high school. So yeah, I no. feel like I've, you know, yeah, <laughs> follow through on that promise. <laughs> no, there's I, I I it's it's always fun to well not always fun depending on who it is but. <laughs> I, I don't connect very much with um, people from high school, really. I, a couple here and there, I've kind of drifted away. I think that's probably pretty common. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm trying yeah. to think if there's anyone I'm still in touch with. Not many people. Yeah. Well, I a lot that we could talk about um, besides sports, mm. of course. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it's funny. I... I saw your pandemic journaling project, and I think you even, you know, sent it to me on Facebook or something like four months ago. Did you send it to everybody, or was there a particular reason that you sent it to me? Or and I want to talk about it a little bit, but sure, like yeah, I sent it to people I thought might be interested. Okay, um, it's uh, it's sort of an experiment. But it's been really fun to build. Yeah. And um, I don't know. Are we recording it? Are we? We have, we have been recording. Yes. All right. Yeah. Um, are you? Don't, yeah. I should say no, because whenever I, whenever somebody asks me that, they're like, oh, my God, I have to sound a particular way. So you, you sound no. great. Don't worry. It's all good. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's uh, so the, this journaling project came together at a moment when I think a lot of us were trying to figure out, like, what can I swear? <laughs> you can, yeah, please. <laughs> like, you know, like, what the fuck is happening, yeah, right? Yeah, what is our world becoming, and who are we in it, and what are people gonna say in the future? And do we want to have a record of this time? Like, will we personally want to have a record of this time? Maybe some people probably will. Um, and you know, historians will for sure. They'll want to know how people were living and what people were thinking and what people were freaking out about and what people were excited about and kind of how this pandemic intersected with everything else that was going on in their lives. Um, and that's sort of where the idea came from. Hmm. It's, it's brilliant. And I think um, we're all trying to, to figure this out. And, and I actually have, as I've said on my podcast, I, people sort of will sometimes be kind of like, well, why are you talking about the pandemic so much? And, and I, I, first of all, I'm trying to, it's probably therapy in a weird sort of way, but yeah. I do sort of connect it with social media pretty regularly. Like, I feel like we've been thrown into this world of phones and technology, and we're sort of just trying to, left to like pick up the pieces and, and figure out a way to make it seem normal in our lives. Yeah. And I feel like the same thing is happening with this. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting we ask, I think a lot of us ask ourselves, is social media a good thing right now or is it a bad thing, right? Are things like Skype or Zoom or whatever, are they good or are they bad? And I don't think there are any clear answers or any simple answers. I think we're all trying to do the things we need to do professionally or to just keep it together um, right. or to fulfill particular needs. Like some people really want to go to church, right? Or they want to go to their synagogue or something. Um, and so we try to figure out like, will technology help us do that? Is it gonna is it gonna make things better? Are we gonna feel more connected? Or is it gonna make things worse? Are we just gonna be left feeling kind of empty um, and disappointed? And, you know, and, and so this is kind of a chance, and it's been again, it's been an experiment from the very beginning, but it's been an experiment in trying to figure out whether we could create a digital space where people could create something that felt real and genuine and lasting. Um, both for themselves and then also for, for history. And the whole idea of the Pandemic Journaling Project is that it's two things at once. It's both the space for journaling, and that can mean whatever people want. They can upload audio, they can upload photographs, they can write text, they can dictate into their phone. Like, honestly, short of video, which we don't have the bandwidth to do, they right. can journal in whatever way they want to. Um, and at the same time, everything people contribute becomes part of a historical archive. And mm -hmm. so for 25 years, it's just going to be accessible to researchers. And then after 25 years, it'll be opened up to the world. And anyone who wants to you know, look at that material can have access to it. And what we think is that it'll really provide, you know, real-time insight for individuals and like for their families, right? So you can imagine people creating a journal now and then like sharing it with their grandchildren if we still have the technological wherewithal, right? In however many decades um, to share, you know, what people were going through. And at the same time, you can think like historians 50 years from now can see, you know, how, I don't know, like a retired person in Wisconsin 
was trying to figure out how they were going to get to their doctor's appointment because there's no more shuttle service for older people um, because of COVID or how college students figured out how to celebrate Halloween when they weren't allowed to have Halloween parties and get together and get shit faced in their ridiculous costumes right. and kind of everything else, you know, doctors, um, we had a doctor, someone working in a hospital right this week and say, you know, we're getting information every day about how we should treat COVID patients. And we don't know what's right. You know, we don't really have the evidence to know what, you know, which of the studies crossing our desks are the ones we should be following or not. And so even experts are kind of grappling and struggling. Um, so we're hoping that just having like real time records of all of these everyday struggles will have value. It's funny because I was thinking about my, although I have not contributed towards your journaling project, probably because in my own way, I was writing songs over the last six months. I know. And it really, but I guess to compare it to you and and what I'm doing, it's, it really has been this cathartic experience Mm -hmm. and it does show the value of just like no judgment, getting it out, therapeutic. I mean, I think the difference, well, yours will be ultimately released to the public. And, and, mm-hmm. and it, I think that's, it's scary to, to, because I feel like we've created a world where we just sort of like vomit on Facebook, but are we really thinking about what we're saying? But in, yeah. in, in this regard with, with your project and, and, and very much so in the sense of writing songs, it feels like a safer space to do it are you feeling like is are people judging or are there conversations that get a little uncomfortable because i'm sure people have different um takes on what's going on yeah that's a great question i mean first of all i think there absolutely is a need for catharsis for a lot of us and some of us just struggle and can't find it and others write music um others might make you know, art, other kinds of art, like paintings or sculpture. Um, And I think what we're seeing with this project is that some people love to write and they want to write and they write thoughtfully. And some people even write like every day. So the way the project works, you kind of sign up, you do your first week. We ask a lot of questions just to get a sense of like, who are the people contributing, which will be helpful to researchers to know a little bit about contributors. And then we just open the gates and say like, okay, here's a question. How is this pandemic affecting you? Tell us. And then the second question or pair of questions each week is a little more directed, like asking about the impact on people's relationships or on their work or finances or things like that. Um, But some people will, you know, you can almost tell that they've got a notebook or they've got like a file on their computer and they're writing like Monday, Tuesday, you know, and then they get their little weekly email reminder on Tuesday and they copy and paste it right into their journal entry. And other people, you can see that they're just like, they're not capitalizing, they're not punctuating, they're just kind of vomiting on the page. Like often with plenty of expletives, just saying like whatever they've got to get out. And some people you can, you know, will upload photographs that they've taken very thoughtfully and, you know, you wonder if they're photographers and how they were trained to compose an image so beautifully. And other people will, like this one image that I absolutely loved is a photograph by someone who's working on a farm. And this person is writing about how much they love taking care of the cows because they can't interact with people right now. 
but they're these cows and they're responsible for helping this farmer out with the cows. And so this picture is like a close-up of a cow's face almost looking up the cow's nose. <laughs> and like there's something so beautiful and intimate about this like close-up of a cow face. How does a person decide to take that picture? I have no idea, but it's yeah. a really cool way. And that image paired with this, you know, narration of really enjoying being around animals at a time when people are are cut off hmm. um, and also like helping this farmer who needed help. And that was this way to kind of be engaged with other people and doing something pro-social. Pro, um, it's just really beautiful. So I don't know. Is that like a song kind of? Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Definitely. Right? Yes. Now, are there like discussions at all after the fact of, of are you guys meeting and... And talking about what people are experiencing at all? Is yeah, it, is, that's a great question. Is it going to that place? <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. Like, we weren't expecting it to be a community, right? We were expecting it to be more of a repository or an archive. Um, and every time someone contributes, they make the choice. Do I want this to be just for my, or do I want to kind of give a, a sign off that this can be posted publicly? Um Excuse me, and uh, and we don't share everything that people are willing to make public. Mm. We curate um, the site, and we have what we call the featured entries page, um, and it's pretty dynamic. We upload new material pretty much every day, um, and you can see that some people are starting to feel a sense of community by participating. So you might respond, like someone might respond to another post, or someone might respond to kind of the general sentiment. Um, like, you know, in terms of people stressing out or this week we're seeing people say stuff about the election. Yeah. Um, we've got a big election coming up. <laughs> sure. um, and uh, so, you know, or there was a really lovely post um, just the other day from someone in Greece who kind of signs off with this caring message to whoever's reading. Or sometimes people will actually say, like, I don't know who's reading this, but dot, dot, dot. And they'll just kind of put it. So is there a community, like, you can't, it's not like a standard social media site where you can log, log in and like or comment. And we didn't want it to be that. Um, technologically, obviously, we could have set that up. But um, we didn't want it. And and we actually talked about it today. And we're cool with that. Like, it doesn't, it's, a sense of community seems to be emerging, but not, the way it might on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. It's sort of a different a different sense of, of community. And, you know, people might not at all care about that piece. They might just want to make their own journal. Yeah. And that's fine, too, you know? It's funny, but I'm feeling a little um, regretful. And it's almost a, a stamp of, of who I've become, and I'm sure many of us, because when you sent me the invite, I just thought it was a Facebook group. And I think I was, mm. in, I think I was in the midst of writing, because I also I'm trying to like sell a book right now. And I, 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 don't, think, yeah. I don't think I really probably fully understood what you were doing. And it's no yeah. fault of you. It's the fault of me not really going in a little deeper and examining what you're sending me. And I think that's no, but totally I think fine. I get no, but I'm not saying I'm not saying any of this in the sense that you're, you know, making me feel guilty at all because you're not. But I'm also very curious uh, mm. about what you've created. But I think it's mm. also sort of a a um, 
it just shows the culture that I think many of us have sort of fallen into where we just get this information. We don't really look at it and see what's going on. We just sort of like move on. I don't know. It was just something I was thinking as you're telling the story. Oh my gosh, we're all inundated with mountains of crap every day, right? I mean, how do you keep on top of email and then social media too? It's just, you know, these torrents of, uh, of messages and you don't, it's like you have to somehow triage, right? Yeah. Um, And, and this is a weird thing. So like, why would anyone necessarily have reason to dive deeper? Um, you know, interestingly, more than 550 people have, uh, and that's cool. I think that's cool. It's definitely um, cool. So far, yeah, and so far we've got you know, those 550 people. It's more now. Um, they're in 24 different countries, and they've contributed more than 4,500 individual journal entries. So there's a lot of stuff in there, um, and we're pretty excited about that, and we're thinking about how to broaden the appeal, how to communicate more effectively, like, what is this thing? Um, why should anyone give it a second look? Um, because it's a little unusual. Um, we're also thinking a lot about, you know, how to make it something that doesn't just appeal to one set of folks, and you know, but really that kind of is seen by people of a lot of different backgrounds and ages um, and, and in different countries as, as having some value um, to them and more generally as well. So, um, yeah, so those are some of the challenges. But I think you've really hit, like, precisely on one of the challenges we've had. How do we actually communicate what this thing's about? Well, and I think a couple more things I'm thinking uh, before I move on to another point. But I think what's really frustrating for me um, is somehow human beings' feelings and the complexity of what a human being thinks and feels um, is just doesn't matter anymore or it's mm. completely misunderstood. You know, I posted something on Facebook where I, I even started saying, because I was practicing writing a piece that I was thinking, where I even started it out by saying, I'm angry. And mm. one could assume... Um, that I'm, you know, this bitter, angry human being. And the reality is, is that, you know, we have moments where we're happy, joyful, angry, confused, frustrated. And somehow I've always felt that I was leaning left. But because I question what's happening with the pandemic and find it to be very peculiar, especially with the election, Um, And the way that Governor Newsom here in California, just his relationships with China and the way that he just sort of wants to shut everything down, yet his students are going to private school. There's there's so many layers here. And if I say anything at all, people just want to judge me or or pigeonhole me as this or that without really Mm -hmm. without really having a conversation. And I kind of think this might be why people are scared to possibly share on your on your project or get involved with your project because mm. we live in this world now where people are just like throwing daggers and don't even want to listen anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I think it we really are. I think we really are in a toxic environment in this respect. I think we've retreated into corners, so many of us. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it has to do with the media ecosystem and it has to do with the tone and the tenor of political discussion in this country, and it has to, it has to do with a lot of things. Um, but I do think there's something about you know social media that invites us 
to be snippy and curt and impatient with other people. Um, hmm. And I think that's dangerous. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm a professor. Like, I teach. This is what I do for my day job, right? Um, and so my job is to take people together, bring people together to have conversations about things that are complicated, often controversial, that we don't necessarily agree about. And the, just the difference between the work of trying to cultivate a space for thoughtful conversation on one hand and the world of social media on the other is pretty vast. Like it can just, that's a huge chasm. I'll say a point and I want to see um, how it relates to your classroom because I think people are spending more time on their phones. This way of communicating with like emojis and texting is is taking over. If there's a pie, you know, talking took up 99% of the pie 15 years ago um, and, or maybe even 100%. And that talking is slowly vanishing and being replaced by text emojis. And you brought up an interesting point. I think people are on Facebook or Instagram, either like at the post office, in the bathroom, or like out to eat or something. So they're not like fully present. And so the the easiest thing to do is to write a really quick, snappy comment. And so because we're getting used to that way of communication, I don't think we're really thinking about what the other person might be experiencing or being thoughtful or sensitive. And I'm just, how how has your classroom sort of evolved conversationally over the last five, I don't remember when you started as a teacher or professor, how many years ago, but I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen a shift. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think definitely there's been a shift. I think you're absolutely right in terms of how much time and attention devices consume at this point. Um, I think there's definitely an interesting generational thing happening right now. I feel like maybe you and I are of the last generation of people who learned primarily with books and paper and pencils. (laughs) Um, And, you know, there were like, we had computers, um, but they weren't dominant in our learning and they weren't probably dominant in our lives unless, you know, like someone our generation was a computer programmer and that was kind of their thing and they did nothing else, right? And and maybe I'm making a caricature, but like I remember getting the first computer in my house. I think I was around 10th grade. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I remember the dot matrix printer that we got so they could print out, you know, schoolwork. And that like really, I think, dates me, maybe us, if I may. Yeah, sure. Um, And, you know, people who are in college now were born at a time when like everyone had a cell phone and everyone was already connected and expecting certain modes of communication to be normal. And they were expecting to be using devices much earlier. Um, And so the kind of digital native experience means that when you're trying to get people to communicate with each other, you're already competing with those expectations and those behaviors um, and ways of interacting with technology. You know, students get really pissed when I say, 
I don't want devices in my classroom. I will kick you out if I see one. So I've that, never actually done it. Okay, but, but that I, is your like that's your that's thing. My MO. Okay, yeah, cool. Like it's on my syllabi. You know, I have the right to kick you the fuck out of my classroom if I'm going to see you on Facebook. Wow. Because it's not going to allow us to transcend these digital limitations that we all live in now and create the kind of real human connection that makes, in my view, that makes a certain kind of learning possible and a certain kind of conversation possible. Um, I mean, you're a yoga teacher, right? Like, how, how would you teach a yoga class if everybody was on their phones the whole time? Yeah, like, it's, it's just, it, well, it's funny. Right? I, it's impossible. And I even think about, like, like, imagine if your pilot, or I just had a root canal, my first root canal ever. Imagine if my endodontist is looking at his phone while he's going through his procedure. I mean, I'd be like, what, right. the, what the fuck are you doing? Or imagine the pilot in airline travel, you know, we take for granted. Um, but like 20,000 planes take off and land every day. Imagine if your pilot or your air traffic controller is, is looking at Facebook and Instagram while they're working. I mean, right. there should be that level of value placed on our day-to-day -day lives. And I think we right. sort of just get numb or, or just get lazy. And, and, and I also think one other point I'm thinking is you're saying this hysterical story about your class. <laughs> Somehow just saying no, it's mm -hmm. like people can't, can't handle People don't know how to say it. People don't know how to handle it. So I'm like so happy that you actually are saying that, no, you're, you can't have this for this hour or two hours or however long your class is. Yeah. It's funny. And, it, you know, I do, I feel like, and maybe this is true and maybe it's not, but I've basically made peace with the fact that when I tell my students, I don't want to see your computer in class, it's my ego speaking. Like, I don't want to compete hmm. with your computer and all of the distractions it brings in. I absolutely believe everything that we're saying right now about the need to be able to sustain a certain level of focus and how there are many jobs that you actually can't have if you're incapable of sustaining that level of focus, right? right? But when I, when I tell myself every semester when I get up to say, I don't want to see your computer is like, I don't want to compete with it. And it's about my ego and I'm okay with that because I have a job to do and I can't do that job. If you're like looking at your friends, you know, pictures of being hungover drunk at a frat party, like, right. I can't compete with that, you know? Yeah, but I think you have to give yourself a little bit of slack because I don't think anybody can compete with it. I don't think anybody can. You I know, agree. It's yeah. just, I mean, um, what are you teach? I know you studied anthropology in college, mm -hmm. but so what's, you're teaching at UConn, right? Yeah, so I teach at the University of Connecticut, and um, so I studied a bunch of different things. Um, I studied anthropology, so I'm a, a cultural anthropologist, a so sociocultural anthropologist. And what does that uh, what does that entail, or what does that even mean? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> so, um, so on one foot, um, anthropologists are interested in people being people. Hmm. Um, whatever that means, wherever that is, um, and at whatever point in time. So, uh, I have colleagues who study human bones and stuff. I have colleagues who study human evolution, um, or, Indi or language. And Indiana Jones is one of your colleagues. 
They, exactly. <laughs> right. um, full professor at the University of Connecticut. Yeah. Um, but um, but what folks like me do, so I'm, I'm a cultural anthropologist and I'm also a medical anthropologist, which basically means that I'm trained to think about people's experiences of health and illness and their bodies and all of the different things that come to shape our experiences of health and illness and our bodies. So, um, and I also have some training in public health. Um, so I teach courses on, um, I, and I also am part of the Human Rights Institute wow. uh, at at um, at UConn and run a program there on global health and human rights. So you were always you were always an overachiever. I, I do too much. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I teach courses like my favorite course to teach. I'm actually teaching next semester, and it's called Embodiment and Experience, and it's basically a chance to kind of think deeply with some philosophical ideas and some sociological and anthropological ideas about what it means to live in the world in a particular body and how the body that we're in shapes our experience and how we train bodies to interact in certain ways with the world and with other people. Um, and of course, you know, who we are is shaped by the, the way we experience gender and our race or ethnicity um, and our sexuality and sexual orientation and our age and whether we're, you know, we have a particular uh, disability. So it's, it's a chance to really think deeply about all of the things that come to influence how people experience their bodies in the world. And I love teaching it. How does one um, become proficient or feel like they have the know-it-all to, um, or wherewithal know-it-all to to share? Like, how how does one imagine what they're studying and experiencing um, could teach others how to experience their own separate? Uh, experience. Do you know? Do you, uh, do you know what I'm yeah. asking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. So, the first thing that I would say is we have to recognize how the context of our lives has come to shape our own experience of mm. our bodies. Right. That's sort of the first step to be like, like, okay, well, you know, what is it about my life experience and the health issues that I may have experienced and about the way I've been racialized, right? So like people see me on the street and they say, oh, that's a white woman, right? Um, and I'm okay with that. Like I identify in that way. Um, but those are things that are, there are characteristics of me that are, you know, maybe someone else would be seen as a white woman, but that's not how they experience themselves. So the first thing we have to do in a class like this is kind of come to understand how it is that we experience the world and how that influences the way other people see us and how other people's experience is different, right? So like I have queer students who, you know, the first thing that they want to talk about is how they are always made to feel uncomfortable because people will call them the wrong pronoun mm. or um, people whose body shape or body size is something that draws attention in ways they're not comfortable with um, or Students will talk about the way in which 
you know, the, they're, they're racialized in ways that make them vulnerable. So black students talking about experiencing discrimination in ways that I, you know, I might not even have thought like possible. So my students have educated me about ways of being in the world that are different from my own. So the first thing that we all, we really have to do, like I was saying, is sort of come up with a toolkit that allows us to see ourselves as like particular as opposed to being the norm. And once you've done that, if you have a little curiosity and some good texts, you can have all kinds of conversations. And, you know, I'm not an expert in all of these things, but I think I can ask some decent questions. Um, And that's really my job as a teacher. I think my job isn't to give everyone all the facts they should memorize and then they're going to be experts. It's really to help people learn how to ask good questions and learn how to find the tools that will help them find good answers. Yeah. I'm thinking, you said the word curiosity, and I'm Mm -hmm. also thinking about, like, you know, these terms, um, super spreader, white privilege, Black Lives Matter. It, It does feel like the society that we live in wants to lump everybody up into something. And I feel like we, in, in these terms, actually are promoting that in this, in my opinion. Um, it's, it's making like people just need to fit comfortably into these factions either, you know, and it obviously started with politics left and right, but it, I see it culturally happening just in other factions. And I, and I think in this weird sort of way, it's eliminating curiosity and it's also sort of eliminating individual experiences. It's, it's, Mm. you know, it's, it's almost like, um, I, I mean, I've been reading black authors that, that aren't aligning with black lives matter, but they feel like they're scared to even say anything because the assumption is is that they should. And Mm. we don't have to go down this rabbit hole of, of what that means. But I think my point was, is that, the media is like pummeling these catchphrases, it almost feels like. Uh, it's almost like they're creating headlines for how human beings should behave. And we sort mm. of have, we have to like fit neatly in those little boxes. And I think it's why a lot of people I think are feeling uncomfortable with their own experience because they don't really know where to fit. You know, it's interesting. I think one of the things that we have to do as critical consumers of the media is think about where terms are coming from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think some people would like to blame media. Other people will blame particular actors, right? particular groups or particular movements. Um, but uh, something that I think is really important especially when I'm communicating with my students is to see, every time you see a term to figure out where it's come from and what someone's trying to achieve by using the term. And, Hmm. um, and sometimes those intentions are pretty, you know, innocent or direct or self-evident. And sometimes they're more sinister or more motivated, you know, if you want to be a little, um, less cynical about it. And, um, so I'm not inclined to kind of paint things in broad brushstrokes. Um, I think different terms have different kinds of meaning. And I'm a big fan of the idea of what we call in anthropology, genealogy. Like we think of genealogy of ourselves, our families, our heritage, where we come from. So we think about the genealogy of ideas, the genealogy of terms, 
you know, where does a particular term come from and what, what is it like, what's the kind of constellation of ideas it belongs to? And when someone's using it, what are they meaning in a literal sense? And also what are they invoking in that broader sense? Um, so if becoming like a critical consumer of media, I think is really about learning to listen for not just the flat, you know, literal meaning of things, but to hear those echoes, to hear what's being drawn into a conversation when someone chooses to use a particular term. And I think that, uh, that takes work to train your brain to not just sort of float along on the river of, you know, public discourse, but to think, right. To actually think. Yeah, I think, I mean, I make, it may, it may sound like I think the media has these sort of nefarious intentions, um, but I kind of, I, I do believe that very often. I, I think there are some very powerful people that know that most people aren't critically thinking, and then it almost feels like social media and the smartphone has sort of like retrained the way people, I don't think objective critical thinking is as commonplace as it was 15, 20 years ago. And I think it's just slowly dwindling, dwindling away. And I do, I see more of these, like I read the New York times and it's amazing the, the, the headlines. And it's, I really feel like there's more time spent on how do we create a headline as opposed to the content of the story and I think that's a direct relation to what social media has done, the onslaught of information. Um, I, I don't have a question, but it's it's just something that I've been very aware of throughout the last five, six months during this this pandemic and 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 the reaction to to headlines. And every time I open up my phone, the first, New story is from CNN talking about new cases, 100,000. It's just like it, it, if you do nothing but read headlines or read what's being fed at us, it, 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 I feel like it is rounding up people to think a certain way. And it, it, that scares me a little bit sometimes. So here I'm going to jump in with my public health hat on. Okay. I think one of the reasons people feel overwhelmed by statistics about COVID is that we have really shitty health literacy in this country. What is health literacy? We don't have a really good handle on uh, statistics. Hmm. We don't really have a good handle on what actually causes risk or what even risk is. Um, and so right now, I think we're dealing with a country that doesn't know doesn't have a lot of tools for thinking. And this isn't about like any particular person, like not about you. Or, like I think as a society, I think we don't have the tools conceptually hmm. to understand an unfolding catastrophe. And we're in an unfolding catastrophe. Like we don't have the, like we just don't have the equipment in our head to process what we're living through. I, you know, so, and public health, folks have been really struggling to figure out how to communicate with mm -hmm. the broader public. And when we're in an environment in which we have a national leader whose best kind of recommendation is to fire the most esteemed scientist who's uh, been tracking, monitoring, trying to develop response on the basis of a many decades long career and expertise, it's 
really tricky to break out of that. Yeah. I think I'm sensitive to what we consume because, you know, I was really sick as a kid. And, or maybe you don't know, but I, I missed a lot of school and I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. And it, you know, knock on wood, I've been in great health in, you know, for 20 years now. Um, but it was a lot of work of like exercise and eating right and therapy. And um, one of the effects, though, of all of that, you know, was germophobia hypochondria or, or hypochondriacal behavior. And, you know, I've been wearing masks on planes for, for years. Uh, just, mm-hmm. and I don't even know if it really helped, but psychologically I was always like, if I'm going to go to Europe or Greece for like two, three weeks, I'm not going to catch a cold on my flight there and then ruin the trip. But it did mm-hmm. make me feel better. Um, mm-hmm. But I would be the type of person if I if I heard somebody if I heard somebody coughing like at the grocery store or at the movie theater I would like move seats and you know my girlfriend would think that I'm you know at first crazy but now she understands it's just my behavior and how I deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. But so I've ironically though this whole thing it hasn't made me go that way more. It's actually made mm-hmm. me go the other way like. This isn't any different than what we've been dealing with before. It's just it's it's one of the first times where we've had microscopic examination culturally of a new vi- virus. Like viruses come out every year, uh, but mm-hmm. I don't know if we've had the 100 hour in a 24 hour day examination everywhere. And if you mm-hmm. have that it's going to create more fear and anxiety and more hypochondriacs. And I don't think a world of people like me that live in a hypochondriacal way, I don't think that's a good thing. I I think we need less people like me when it comes to in that regards of how one lives life. And I guess my my point is, is that I'm sensitive to reading these articles. And I, I don't think there's a lot of people out there that are causing one to relax. Mm. And so I, I do think about that. Well, you obviously have a really interesting perspective on the idea of exposure and risk and on, on what we're living through right now. Um, I mean, I guess, like, I would ask, do you, you know, do you know anyone who's died of COVID? Like, no. do you know... I don't. Do you know any any clinicians who've been working in hospitals, um, watching people die, you know, constantly? People who, like, under normal circumstances, would never have died. Um, people who are dying alone because they're not able to be in a room with their loved ones or see their loved. Like, you know, I think once we start, and this is part of what my sensibility as an anthropologist brings to this. You know, I, I'm trained to think about all the different people positioned in different ways in relation to a thing or a topic. So if we take COVID as the topic, um, you know, I'm, I've been listening to the doctors. I've been listening to my friend whose mom died of COVID in a nursing home um, and couldn't have a funeral and had to stay in Montreal for, for two weeks um, away from her three kids 
because she couldn't come back into the United States um, after having been in a hospital where there was COVID, right? Um, I've been listening to physician friends who, you know, one of whom thought about moving out because he has a family and he's in the ER and he didn't want to expose his children or, you know, his, his wife, his spouse, because um, he knew that he was around COVID every day. Um, and I've been listening to, you know, not directly, but listening through other kinds of accounts that, that we find in, um, in blogs I've been reading and in academic sources from some colleagues of mine who've been doing research on what it's like to be a frontline clinician right now. Um, I have another colleague who's working with essential care workers. So people who are working as home health aides who are paid shit, right? Yeah. They're like barely paid enough to, to put food on the table and people who are elderly or disabled depend on them. to, And they're, so they're still going to work and they're getting exposed and dying. And just to be in that kind of trap of not being able to choose not to go to work because you got to feed your kids, but then you go to work and, and, you know, you don't have sick time and you don't have vacation time and then you end up dying of COVID. So if you listen to all these different voices and think about all these different perspectives, to me, that's a helpful way of getting some perspective that we don't get from the headlines, right? The, the headlines are just giving us certain windows, certain perspectives. Um, and I'm, I'm trying as a teacher, uh, as, you know, as a researcher, like frankly, also as a parent, because um, I've got two kids, um, to to try and get like a broader perspective, um, which takes us very far beyond the headlines. Yeah. Right? It's um, last thing I'm thinking because I I want to ask a couple of questions. I, because I don't want you to think I'm crazy, but um, I mean, no, I'm I'm friends with doctors because uh, I I used to work um, at a market research firm where we were recruiting physicians for um, medical research studies for pharmaceutical companies, and I speak to doctors that very similarly to you uh, are hearing terrible stories, and then there are others that are saying that you know the common cold is a coronavirus and. It's interesting that nobody's talking about the flu anymore. Just I, I guess my, I this is something that I have a hard time letting go of. I, I think, um, and this will kind of relate to my next question. I'm thinking, but there's, tra I mean, again, maybe I'm just sensitive to tragedy and death and health because I've dealt with it for a long time, and mm -hmm. I think life is really freaking hard for everybody, and mm -hmm. I just feel like. Our awareness could be drawn to almost any calamity at any time, but it's like our brain will focus on this and that and colitis and cancer and, and you know, I realize and I'm speaking to friends about how this is a novel virus and, and the contagiousness of it all, but I just think there's something bigger at play when it's a nonstop story all the time. And I do think we are being led down rabbit holes to think about something, but then ultimately we're also not thinking about just the other issues in the world. It's, it's like I feel like there's some powerful forces that are controlling what we think about. I don't know. It, it, I don't want so that. Do you to... think it's a conspiracy? No, that's the thing. I, 
That's the other. I don't. I believe it's there. I believe it's a real thing. Um, I just question how we've responded. And I question um, closing down and closing schools. And then again, if it's really that bad, how is the National Baseball League or how are they allowed to still play? And then like there's 15,000 fans there. Like if it's really that serious, we're not really taking it seriously or we are in certain factions of the country, but other factions of the country just like, whatever, we're still going to play baseball. You know, it's it's this strange. Have there been 15,000 fans in any game? Yeah, the World Series. They had like 10, 15,000 fans there. And it's sort of like, no, I know. Like I'm not trying to... Um, I'm certainly not a conspiracy theorist. I, I believe it's there, but there's so many conflicting um, stories developing that to me just don't make a lot of sense. Hmm. That's so interesting because I see, you know, first of all, I have not paid attention to the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, yeah, it's fine. As you may have guessed. Um, but, you know, I have not been hearing about... Um, you know, certainly where I live, that would not be permitted. You could not have an event with more than 50 people gathered. Well, I think that's currently where we are right now. Um, and what's scary and to I me, I would just, it, it, the World Series was played in Texas. And, you know, that's a red state. So it's sort of like, God, it pisses me off when if something so potentially serious and life-threatening gets political. And, and like, it's just... It's either it, it, it is or it isn't. Who cares about sides? Just listen to what we're suggesting. But that's that somehow has like crumbled in front of our very eyes. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're saying is, from my perspective, we see some pretty reasonably solid public health advice at this point that's being followed more in some parts of the country and less in other parts of the country. And the parts of the country where it's followed more, we see less cases and we see fewer deaths. In places where it's followed less, we see more cases and more death, right? And we see rallies where people are getting together crowded and not wearing masks. We see cases. We see deaths. So I guess I'm I'm in a different place um, in terms of how I'm interpreting what's happening around us. And yeah. I'm very concerned, like I said, that there's a real lack of both health literacy in the sense of kind of understanding um how public health professionals come up with their recommendations and why they make the recommendations they do. And I also think that we're in a moment, maybe a little bit less now than seven months ago, but I think we're in a moment in which a lot of us still don't really have the capacity to appreciate the fact that this is a huge crisis and it's fucking up our economy and our country and the world in ways that are on par with other major global uh, crises. So that's that's what I see. Yeah. Um, have you have you? I guess the reason why I brought that up. Have you seen the social dilemma? I have not. Have you heard about it though, or the? I have not. No, it's <laughs> I live it, under a rock. <laughs> no, it's fine. I well, it's it's uh, it's um, it was on Netflix. It's about the impact of social media, and they bring up this word um, attention, mm. the attention economy. And I'm I I'm just very fascinated by because you know I put out a record and and it's it's like it's not or a song and it's it's really what do people do to get your attention now because it's like 
um, everybody's attention is drawn to their phones, and and that's the only only reason why I'm just curious about. Um, and I don't want to talk too much about COVID anymore, but I've just been curious about the way that the stories uh, and the reporting, and even like Cardi B, who I don't know if you know, she's like a singer and she just like sings about her private parts all the time. And I think that people are doing and businesses are doing what they whatever they can to like get people's attention. It's like the attention economy now. That's that's the world we live in. It's and so I've just. Um, I'm curious how we are, um, whether we're even aware of it or not, just led down certain paths. It's just, that to me is just interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think, I think it has implications for how important news is packaged. And I think a lot of really important, uh, insights and, and depth gets lost, um, in that economy. I guess my last area that I'm curious about, by the way, thanks again for, for chatting with me. I, it, sure. it, it means a lot. <laughs> it's, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I read something about a class of yours, or you said e- something about equality. What, what uh, and healthcare equality, um, what's the class or the area that you're interested in? Say it again. I could scroll on your page, but... So another project I run is called Arches, or the Americans' Conceptions of Health Equity Study. There we go. That's it. Yeah. And it's a project that's based in Cleveland, Ohio, in the first phase. Could you explain it a little bit more? But I think you were also talking, maybe health um, and human rights or health and equality, but just sort of explain to me what, um, I guess, first explain... The Americans' Conception of Health Equity Study. Sure. And we shorten it to ARCHES, which okay. is easier to remember <laughs> yes. than the, the whole long name of the project. So the goal of that project, which is totally separate from other stuff we've been talking about, right. comes from a kind of insight that um, that has to do, in fact, with the kind of toxic media environment that we're in. Hmm. It comes, so the, the goal of this study is to try and get a sense of how Americans of different political views and backgrounds think about what's fair when it comes to healthcare and why we have disparities in health in our society, where they come from, um, what's caused them, what the solutions to those disparities might be, And we're interested in how people's own experiences of life uh, influence their ideas about what's fair and not when it comes to health. So we spent a whole lot of time in Cleveland, in fact, a city that you and I both know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Talking to, we we interviewed 170 people um, of different political orientations, racial and ethnic backgrounds, ages, educational levels, um, income levels. Um, to ask them a bunch of questions about, like, you know, their own sense of whether they're healthy or not and why, their own sense of whether they're flourishing hmm. in life and why or why not, 
um, their own sense of whether they feel valued in society or not. And a bunch of other questions. And, and then we, we share some information about some health disparities in our society in terms of the gap in life ex- expectancy between black and white Americans and some disparities in terms of a really horrible um, problem in our society involving exposure to lead in children. Um, so exposure to lead in, in children can cause all sorts of health problems over the life course and other kinds of problems too. So we, we talk to people about these two disparities in health and ask like, is this something on your radar? Did you know about this? Um, what do you think the cause is? Um, is this a problem? Should we do anything about it? Whose responsibility is it? And we've been kind of sitting with those those interviews and analyzing them and doing some some research and writing them up in some articles. And we just took everything or some, some core insights from that work and used them to develop a survey that we just conducted with a national sample um, in the past couple of weeks. So we're going to be sharing those findings pretty soon. So that's, you know, pretty straight up research, um, less perhaps of a kind of public audience for it at this moment. But the real question of interest, I think, to people is that we all have a lot of ideas about what's fair and what's not and whose health deserves attention Hmm. and investment and concern um, and whose doesn't. And the real challenge in here, going back to putting my teacher hat on, is to ask people like, well, how do how do we as individuals answer those questions, and where do those values come from, and are we okay with the way we see things, or do we do we think that there might be reason to kind of sit with our assumptions and and think about them a little more critically? Because maybe um, maybe our assumptions have have some problems that you know are worth looking at more deeply, um, or maybe as a society we carry some assumptions as a society that are causing other kinds of problems. Um, for instance, we're seeing, and you know, not to <laughs> bring things back to COVID, but when we look at COVID, we see that the, the proportions of people who are black or Latino who are exposed are much higher um, than people who are white. And the proportions of people who are dying who are black and Latino are much higher than people who are white. And that's not random. And yeah. so- um, you know, where are those disparities coming from? Well, they come from um, differences in life chances. They come from differences in educational opportunity. They come from differences in where people are able to live. They come from all sorts of different, you know, factors. Um, but do we accept them as okay? Or do we think that it's a problem that more black people are dying of COVID, more Latino people are dying of COVID? If we think it's a problem, then maybe we've got some work to do in terms of thinking about how our assumptions influence what we think is okay. I feel like you need to um, go to Washington D.C. and 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 like share your findings. Or um, part of me, you know, I'm curious, like what type of student is taking your class? But I almost feel like you could become a political health advisor of some sort, just listening to you and what you're doing. So I, are people taking your class just out of curiosity or are these um, medical students? Because there is this strange parallel or mixture where it's like um, sociological, but also healthcare related. Yeah. So the interesting thing about people who have the job I have is that part of what we do is teach and part of what we do is write up what we've learned for all sorts of audiences. Hmm. Um, so 
sometimes I talk about this work in my classes, uh, but usually I'm writing about it either for other health researchers, um, sometimes other anthropologists, sometimes people in public health. And I've actually just been participating with a colleague of mine in training exactly in what you're suggesting and how to talk to people who are in government um, and share insights that we're learning so that we can maybe even have an influence on, on what elected officials and policymakers do and the kinds of decisions they make and uh, the way they talk also. Because as we were saying earlier, the words we choose um, and the way we frame things, frame problems and frame solutions is going to influence what people can imagine. So um, part of what I do is talk to students and part of what I do is talk to all sorts of other folks. And I'm learning to, to kind of build that repertoire um, even more. It's funny. I'll, I, you're okay with time, like five more minutes, maybe 10 at the most. I'm almost done. But I, I was thinking, you said the word, and I don't know if a question will evolve out, out of this, but you said the word valued. Mm. And I, I just, that is such an important part of, and I don't have kids and I have been thinking about the word legacy. Mm. And I think part of why I have the podcast and, um, and I write is it's a part of who I am. And it's, it's like this natural occurrence that happens to me. And, and I like to talk and, um, share because I think when I'm thinking other people are thinking but maybe people are scared to articulate it or they don't know how and, and it's also just great to um, there was this movie with Nicolas Cage and Michael Caine called The Weatherman mm-hmm. and uh, Michael Caine wanted to have a funeral before he passed away it's like what's the point of having a funeral uh, when you're already gone you know you want to be there for your own funeral so I feel like in this weird sort of way um, I, I like to know that I'm leaving uh, things, products, whatever, that will be there when I'm gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, I think back to social media, and then, and then one other point I'll let you go. I think we, do, we have become reliant on those platforms to make us feel valued. And I mm. think we need, to, because like the quick like, the quick comments, it's the numerical uh, 50 followers, 100 followers. We get envious of Cardi B who has 50 million followers. Like, you know, even Rotten Tomatoes, we look at a movie, if it has an 80 or higher, oh, we'll go. It's, it's amazing how like these quick fixes don't really give us the satisfaction of a true experience that that Mm. does actually bring value. Like this experience that you and I are having Mm -hmm. is so much grander than the back and forth that you and I had on Facebook, Mm. you know, and it's, and Mm -hmm. and, and we, it's not like we would have done this before our conversation. I mean, I'm not naive to think that that was a necessary way to sort of, um, the prelude to our discussion now, like it wouldn't have made sense Mm. to talk back and forth, setting it up. But I think the reliance on those methods of communication are why I think people feel undervalued. Mm. I think you're right. I think, you know, we've talked about a number of reasons why we just don't either have opportunities or the attention or the kind of embodied training to expect 
a certain level of connection with other people. Um, we've come to expect so much less and then feel empty when they leave us feeling disappointed. Yeah. Um, so maybe our generation has something important to teach people. Maybe we're like the last generation of people who remember a life uh, that wasn't sort of polluted by social media um, and technology in the ways that it is now. And maybe one of our tasks is to turn these media inside out and recreate them for the good, recreate them as spaces of potentially genuine connection. And I think that's something you try to do through your music and through this podcast. Um, even if your guests sometimes end up landing on different sides of issues than you do. Um, And I think it's something we're trying to do also through the Pandemic Journaling Project to kind of take a technology that would, under other circumstances, leave people feeling empty and flat and disappointed and create it as a, a space in which people can feel a sense of genuine connection with people they will never meet and whose names they will never know, but whose experiences they've glimpsed in a kind of genuine raw way. Yeah. Do you do you think last question because I struggle with this a lot. Um, sometimes I think like the intentions of of in your case, you know, scholars are obviously good and want to bring more awareness and understanding. Uh, but I think, you know, and I learned this from a young age, and I think a lot of us do, that sometimes you just can't understand the fragility and the, the, um, the, just the way life unfolds. You know, it's just, it's something that you can't, like we try to put a nice bow and put it into a box and wrap it up nicely so we can all be equal, like we can all live in this utopian world, and, and it's just, it's the impossible and no matter what we try to do to make it seem possible it's it's uh, it's ultimately just going to fall on its face because this world of ours is just so complex and complicated I, I, do you ever think about that or you like it 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 would discourage me or maybe you ignore it and just keep you see a, a brighter light at the end maybe i don't know it's interesting i think so I'm not sure this will answer your question precisely, but um, in much of my work, and in fact, in, in the book that I wrote that we haven't had a chance to talk about, um, I actually write about people whose lives are pretty shitty and pretty awful and pretty uh, constrained and pretty scary and uncertain. And um, I, you know, I'm writing about people who are unauthorized migrants, people who've left their countries um, in Ghana or Nigeria or the Philippines and come to Israel looking for a better life for themselves and their families. And their lives are really hard. Um, but my focus in, in the book is on how all of the circumstances around them have set them up to have really difficult, challenging, painful, often tragic life experiences. But so many of them continue to pursue a flourishing life, continue to pursue a chance to live with dignity Mm. and meaning um, to flourish. And that's what I find especially interesting and especially hopeful. So I would say I'm like the last person who's trying to tie it all up with a bow and say it's all perfect and great and like we can just abstract, you know, into lovely solutions. Um, 
as a researcher, like as I'm an ethnographer, we'd go hang out with people. That's our main research method. I've spent a lot of time hanging out with people whose lives are really, really difficult and and unpredictable, like you were saying, and uncertain. And what I find just extraordinary about humans is that even though our life and all of our lives are unpredictable and all of our lives are messy and all of our lives are complex, some of us more than others, you know, for different reasons. But what I find so amazing about humans is that we have this kind of existential imperative. That's what I have a colleague, um, a really wonderful senior anthropologist who has the improbable name of Michael Jackson. Yes, that's his name. Uh, I swear to God, he's an anthropologist from New Zealand in his probably late 70s or maybe even early 80s. He talks about this kind of existential imperative um, that we have and or how we have a lot of them and one of them I think is this imperative to find meaning hmm. uh, maybe it's finding a legacy maybe it's finding a way to um, follow through on a dream we have maybe it's just persisting and and getting through every day in a way that allows us to continue to feel like ourselves like I'm still me like it's all, all this shit's happening but I'm still me and that hasn't been taken from me right these are all kind of these deep deep drives that we have. Um, and so that's what I just find amazing about humans, um, that that we're, we live in chaos, always. Um, and you can't wrap that up so well. Um, yeah. You can try, but uh, but I think the real beauty in human life is, is when we see how people find ways to make meaning and, and to feel valued and to make other people feel valued despite it all. Wow, that's great. Very well said. Seriously. Um, yeah, and by the way, I was feeling a little insecure that I, I didn't get the chance to get to your book, so I apologize. No. No, that's well, okay. Because <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, as I said, I, I had this list of things, but I don't, I don't like to like be structured, per se. So, um, it's all good. If anyone's really interested, they can Google my name. It's coming out in paperback in the spring. The end. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'll I'll write a or I'll say an intro and and then give me the um, pandemic pr- project. Is it, does it have a website or is it a Facebook group or? Yep. So you you can I can give you the URL, but I'm not going to say it out loud because no one will remember it. Okay. But the pandemic journaling project is on Facebook. It's on Twitter and it's on Instagram. So it's um, on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Pandemic Journaling, and on Twitter it's at Pandemic Journal, <laughs> and it ends before the L okay. because those are the, the constraints of Twitter. But um, yeah, we would love for folks to check it out. Look at the website. Um, check out the featured entries page where you can see you know some of the things that folks have been contributing and allowing us to share publicly. Um, and check us out on social media. Sarah, this was great. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I, I, it's funny. I, I just, I was anxious beforehand and I just, I feel relaxed. It was just wonderful talking to you. Great. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it so much. Thank you for, for having me and, uh, be well and be safe. Likewise. You too. Thank you. Bye, Sarah. Take good care. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Bye.